This is Big Man Tyrone, and you're about to watch the MTG Cabal cast with your hosts, Wode, Thirsty, and Reptar. Sub to us on all your podcast networks at MTG Cabal cast and YouTube. Alrighty guys, welcome to the newest episode of the Cabal cast. Today, we're going to cover something a little bit different that, you know, isn't necessarily relevant now because paper events, large events aren't happening, but... We want to cover how you chop. Chop a booth, chop a case, sales, buys, everything. Yep. Uh, one of the first things, the ways that a lot of people break into the GP scene is chopping a booth uh, when it's their own business. And basically just want to go over what that looks like. Yeah. Uh, so chopping is not new. Uh, it's quite an old practice. Channel Firewall tried to do away with it. Uh, we were kind of talking about that prior to the cast uh, when they made some vendor announcements when they took over uh, OP. And... We thought, you know, this is a good time to look at it because we have experience with it. Um, and I wanted to start first with chopping sales because to me, this is the easiest way to do things for everyone uh, involved, except sometimes the uh, the patron. So basically, my experience with this has been when you set up your booth, your cases are set up by uh, the individual representing. So. You know, if it's a two-person shop, then each person gets a number of cases, and generally speaking, they're kept separate. And what you bring to the event can be decided upon ahead of time, or, you know, you could just YOLO it and uh, bring whatever. This way, you, maybe you don't step on each other's toes, maybe you do, but at the end of the day, uh, it doesn't really matter. And all that needs to be done is marking the cards that are being sold so that you can essentially keep an internal receipt behind the scenes of what sales were made and what the split was from each of those sales. And it's a twofold purpose because most vendors now track all sales at the booth level anyway, so you're doing that. Now you just need to do a little bit of math on the fly as the, the sales representative and uh, put the split down. Where it gets a little interesting for the patron is if there are... Um, cards that are duplicated on both sides each person might price their cards individually and thus there could be a price discrepancy based on the initial level or the uh, initial amount of funds put into that card that's happened uh, to me on occasion people have asked and you just kind of have to scramble for a reason because while chopping is a known practice no TO really wanted to find out that vendors were chopping booths they they knew it was happening but they didn't want to know it was happening. Exactly. If that makes sense. Yep. You know, don't care what you do as long as I don't have to hear about it type of deal. Exactly. And there are a few um, individuals within the vendor world that, you know, you could see at events from like 2014 up to like 2018, 2019 that, you know, I'm going to put known chopper in quotes here and that's not meant to be a derogatory turn or look down upon. No. But you know when that person was at the as a at a booth working, they were chopping either the buys or the sales at that booth. Yeah. And it's it's interesting, too, because when you mentioned, like, the pricing for sales and having to scramble for a reason, it's, you know, pretty common. And the interesting thing was when you see multiple chopped booths, you run into the problem of, all right, well, this booth is going to price to the lowest one. Mm, yeah. This one is just going to tell me tough. Yep. And that's something that you have to source out. And one of the reasons that, you know, people chop booths in the first place is the cost. Yes. Which obviously... Channel Fireball, especially last year, really increased the cost of those booths. So if it's your first time, it's kind of hard to do it. Yep. So you don't want to drop eight grand 
for you know an eight foot booth if you're not sure you have enough stock, you have enough buy capital, whatever. And that's one of the reasons you want to do this. Yeah. And when you say known shoppers, it's interesting on the vendor side, and you've probably seen this too, where when you're first starting out, people love those guys. They love that they were given an opportunity by being able to chop a booth with someone. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like the mentality for binder traders and floor traders. Eventually, once you become more established, you kind of turn on that. And that's something that always kind of bothered me, just as an aside, was, look, man, you you were a floor trader. You were in a chopped booth. Like, how are you so much better than this now? But I digress. Sorry. Yeah. And, like... Uh, chopping uh, sales, like I said, all in all, has been you know a pretty easy affair for me when I've worked at uh, booths like that. It's never been difficult, and sometimes actually provides more benefit for the patrons than some might think. Mm-hmm. You know, I mentioned the difficulty in regards to having um, you know cards duplicated across cases, but I also mentioned working ahead of time to create your sales strategy whereby one vendor might need to chop a booth because this is you know a modern event or a legacy event and they got in on a contract that says hey we we got three events four events whatever at uh, a rate that we that we like but we can't really field the cards necessary for this one event so let's you know, look for somebody that we know that we trust to kind of chop inventory with, and that yeah. person might provide your modern staples or your legacy staples, and that allows you to have a still a very good presence at your booth, and, and the the door kind of swings both ways on this. For sure, and it's it's one of those things that it's as easy as having a conversation, like you said. Hey, I've got a modern event. I don't have the inventory yeah. for it. I've already put money down for the booth. I'm fine, you know, if you want to chop it, we'll half, you know, half my staff, half your staff, whatever. And, you know, it's something that when you talk about, and we have throughout this podcast, specialized vendors, people that specialize in high-end foils. Well, it's going to be a command fest. I don't have a whole lot of high-end foils. Hey, high-end foil guy, you want to chop this booth with me? And it's as easy as getting a flat payment ahead of time or even just taking a percentage off the top if they record sales and you trust them. Yeah. And... You know, something that you'll notice at these booths, especially when you talk about having different inventories out, a lot of times you'll get passed from one sales guy to the other. And that's the sales strategy that I found works best when I am in a chopped booth Mm -hmm. is like my inventory. I have my guy. He tracks what the sales are. Yep. And if he has to pass off, he says, hey, this guy has this. It's this much money. Yes. Notate it and notate that it was a passed off sale. Yep. So if you ever get passed off like that, and they say, you know, so-and-so can help you now down there at that case. Probably a chop booth. Yep. Uh, that That's actually, of all the chop booths I've worked at, only one of them was, uh, I guess it's considered VIP. It was the full uh, four-sided booth that you get with yeah. CFB. And one side was buys, one side was the chop sales, and then the other two was uh, the company I was actually working for, our sales. Yeah. And that was exactly what happened in that scenario. When I chopped sales on, on other booths, it was in uh, the prior era where yeah. the, VIP, the VIP booth was less about the size and more about the placement. And yep. you only ever had, let's say, four to six cases total. And so there was no need to really worry about that kind of handoff because the booth was small enough. But yeah. when it got large enough where you just kind of got lost in the sauce when it come, came to stock, you had your dedicated you know chopped sales people for 
each side of things, and that pass-off uh, process was definitely uh, part of what we did. And it, wor it works out really well uh, overall, especially if the person who's you know shopping, let's say the smaller entity, isn't the one that's going to record sales. It's going to be the larger per the the larger uh, organization, and it just makes things super duper easy. Um, it gets more difficult the more digital you want to get because that becomes a pain in the ass trying to to chop on the fly, um, doing the math like that. But you know it's kind of neither here nor there. And like I said, overall chopping sales is a, is a very simple thing, and we're gonna kind of jump around on topics, but it, it really does kind of lean into the last one, which is consignment sales. But you know for now we're just gonna move on to chopped buys because this is a completely different animal. Yeah, this this one is, and this. This one, I should say, does not necessarily just apply at the GP Magic Fest level. Yep. This is also the type of thing like you and I do, where we go into a pre-release at a store and we're like, hey, yep. like you don't necessarily have the capital. Can I show up here and like buy and sell at your pre-release type of deal? Yep. And the way that I've worked it out as far as chopped buys go, uh, and this is something you see a lot of times at GPs, you'll have a card. And they'll quote you a number and you'll say, well, I got quoted this. They will turn to a specific person in the booth and say, can you beat this number? And uh, a lot of times that's, well, you've chopped buys. I know you have a particularly good buy list on this card. Can you beat this number? So what I'll usually do, and this is most booths I work at, uh, I'll be like, hey, here are the cards I need. You know, I'm working as your buyer this weekend. This is what I would like to pay on this card. It's more than you're paying. At what quantity can I start buying this card for myself? Or how many of these can I get for myself at this number? Okay. And what usually happens is, you know, say I'm paying $30 on a card and the buy list is 25. All right, well, I need 10 of them. So they'll set aside the first 10 that they buy at 25 and sell them to me for 30. 30 yeah. But that guarantees my quantity. It doesn't affect the overhead at the booth because they're not getting sent back and forth. I'm buying at the same number as everyone else, so it's consistent. Mm -hmm. And it's also, you know, one of those, if you've ever worked in the industry long enough, you know, all right, we'll try to take care of you because you're yep. working a 16-hour day with no breaks, dealing with people who have no social skills or any concept of hygiene. So we'll give you this, you know, little aside, no yeah. offense listeners. Uh, but that's that's how typically it's worked with me yeah. with chopped buys. And it's because I go in with a very specific, these are the cards I need, this is what I'm paying, and these are the quantity I'm picking up. Okay. And, you know, sometimes it may be as simple as, like, I don't know, I'm going to pay a quarter on Mountain Goat at every booth I'm at. You're not buying Mountain Goats. I'll pay a quarter on everyone that comes to the yep. booth. Fine. Yeah. And sometimes it's actually a desired card. So it just kind of depends on that. Yep. Uh, I've definitely done something like that similarly uh, when I work at booths. Uh, never with a, a large buy list, but generally some stuff uh, personally. That's like uh, how I got my LEDs uh, back in like 2012 or 2013 was working at, um, at a booth for the modern GP in Detroit before mm. Death Ride Shaman was banned. I went into that God. weekend and I was like, yo, I just played Dredge at Indy uh, without LEDs because the tech was kind of coming up. And I, uh, the deck was still grand, but it was not yeah. nearly as good as it, it should have been. And I was like, yo, I need four LEDs. And we picked up all four on the weekend, be, you know, 
and they the guys at the booth just looked out for them for me. But it, yeah. actually, that booth in particular was the first time I worked mm-hmm. a booth with chopped buys, and yeah. I the the style I'm about to describe I don't know if it's attributed to like a region, but it's definitely how I've heard it done a number of times, and it like. It is a long, arduous process afterwards, and the reason why a lot of guys don't like chopping a booth multiple ways for buys because they do it this way. And what you essentially do is you you, you pool your money, right? You bring however much you're going to bring. That's what your buy amount is. You start the weekend at, and you know how much you're putting in uh, throughout time if you need to re-up your, uh, your buy stack. And then everything you buy throughout the weekend is price sorted and kept price sorted all weekend long. And yeah. at the end of the event, you you essentially buy from the buys what you put in or what you yeah. spent. And you it's banded by price. Mm-hmm. And you do have upper bounds on things, like you mentioned, you know, like, hey, if you and I are chopping a booth and let's say that back then because it's a great example, Cavern of Souls. Like people, we needed Cavern of Souls for everything. So it's like, okay, yeah. my I need X number, you need Y number. We'll note we'll note that, and then once that happens, Boy. well, not yeah. even that. Like we, we'll hit our quantity, and then we'll drop our buy number on them because we both hit that, and then to serve our clients, and then after that, we'll drop our buy price on them because that was the hot the hot card we needed, right? And there's yeah. a lot of jockeying like that. And where it gets really difficult is at the end when you have to go through everything that was bought and you have to maintain that list of, okay, this is what I have, this is what we have, this is what I need, and you basically just resort everything out. And some people kind of think of it as like the game within the game where you're like dueling yeah. your other booth mates to, to rebuy from the buys to yeah. walk away with stuff. And you know, there's the, the chance that you know you pooled money and you might actually walk away with some cash instead of all cards, and that's perfectly fine. It, it you know that's just what's going to happen at the end of a weekend, but it does take a very long time to sit down and go through everything that was already purchased and processed because generally speaking, somebody's got to be doing that. Uh, either at the end of each night or on the floor live because you just don't want, I mentioned Cavern of Souls, right? If you need to buy 20 or 30 of them at a certain price point, and that's a large uh, price banding at the time, let's say it was $15 for modern, there's a lot of stuff that falls into that category and somebody needs to sort it and put them all together so that when you're going through the buys at the end, you can say, all right, you know, here's all the Cavern of Souls. We bought every single one of them. How many does everybody need? We bought them at this price point, right? So minus your lists. It. Yeah. Every time I've watched it happen, it almost kind of feels like um, you're fantasy drafting. Yeah, pretty much. And it's it's interesting because it is, like you said, you almost have to have on-site processing at that point because a lot of times what you'll see with, you know, chop, and chop eyes are interesting because they're not something that happened at just a lower level. They happen at like the highest level as well. There's plenty of times where there's like, you know, AAA island boots that are all branded the same, but they have someone that basically said, you know, hey, here's a quarter mil for the weekend. Yep. I need these cards in this amount. Great. They're going to process that on site until they hit that quarter mil. And then, great, you're out. Yep. And if, if they don't, then the person comes in and says, all right, well, here's, you know, what I want instead. Yeah. But that's. You know, that is interesting because as opposed to cases where it's rare that you see it at the higher levels, chop buys are almost more common at the higher levels because of the quantity you can deal with at that point. And 
It's also more more common because sales are just kind of whatever. Everybody should have sales stock, unless, like I mentioned before, you know, modern legacy, those niche formats where yeah. you might not have that stock. But you know, you get into the room, you want to be able to buy cards. That's why you're there. Your goal is to leave with cards, not cash. Yeah. And you want to buy as much as possible. So oftentimes it behooves you to try and partner up and shop buys because that means you have more money overall. And if your prices are decent, you're going to acquire more cards because more people come to you. Like it just better serves you as a vendor to really think about shopping buys at any point in time when you're, especially when you're entering large events, um, you know, when they go to like New Jersey or SeaTac yeah. uh, down in Texas, uh, Cali, Florida, like, um, Indiana. Yeah, any of those big events. And and the thing is, too, you know, think about it like this. Chopping buys isn't bad. You know, I'm because a lot of times what you'll do when you chop buys is they don't even put staff there except for one guy whose job it is to make sure they get their money's worth. Mm -hmm. So what they'll do is, you know, say they'll here's, you know, quarter mill. That's what I want. I want a quarter mill in stock. I'll give you 10 percent for doing it. Great. That's a free $25,000 to do what you were already doing, not to mention having that much extra money, whatever the amount may be, gets more people at your tables. So it's it's one of those cases where it is extremely mutually beneficial yes. for you to do that because it does. It, it gets you more asses and seats, mm -hmm. more binders open and everything else. And it's not necessarily, you know. It, it's weird because on the vendor side, I feel like chopping sales and stock is a little bit more frowned upon. But chopping buys is literally just seen as an investment. Yes, uh, and it's it's weird to think about where it's like the onus of chopping a buy lies entirely on the vendor. And I think that's kind of, and it, it offers almost no downside to the patron, yeah. which is why I think it's, you know, kind of a more acceptable quote unquote practice it, because everything happens behind the scenes and everything is meant to benefit uh, the patron. I, I don't under I don't quite understand why CFB frowned upon chopping, especially when they're raising the price with a booth. But at the same time, if their logic was, well, we're going to raise the price of the price of booths overall, yet make space for smaller vendors, it seems like that was kind of what they were attempting to do because those smaller vendors previously would chop. Yeah, you know, and you might not have three small vendors each with a booth at these events like channel fireball was carving out room for uh, when they were uh, toing you might have one booth with all three small vendors and now it's kind of cloudy in regards to who are you working with and who is going to get the business coming out of it because optics are everything and yep. you know you're branded one way or the other or the other in the case of the three vendor situation so i i don't quite understand it and the the other thing that's kind of lost on me is um i don't think channel fire channel fireball did the uk events they don't handle apac region and not shopping the european region doesn't make sense to me either because there are while there are vendors in europe there aren't any there aren't many that are as large as the ones inside the us and to, for a vendor to fly to uh, the European region that's a lot of overhead in regards to employees and stock movement uh, I've been stopped yeah. uh, at customs and just uh, you know, into Canada and TSA internally within the US for just moving one rose around before and it's a hassle every time Yeah. so it's going to be a huge pain in the ass for these vendors 
But if they can have a presence overseas where they send one person with a carry-on and a one row or two in that carry-on and they meet a vendor there and they're branded one way or the other and they're chopping that booth, again, that seems ben that seems extremely beneficial because now that local vendor, that smaller vendor might be able to get a larger booth because they're chopping with a larger vendor from another region. Yep. And it just seems to better serve the people at these events. Like I said, I can't speak to APAC for the most part. Whenever I hear vendors are going to APAC, unless they're like literally 95, they're chopping with somebody. Either yeah. that's already there or somebody that has a presence uh, and is a known quantity in the APAC region. And they do that because people are very picky in the, in, uh, especially the Asian part of the APAC region about who they vent with. Yeah. So having that presence ahead of time is extremely beneficial. Crucial. Uh, so the other thing that is generally accepted in terms of chops, I think, is, you know, it's your LGS, your consignment case. Consignment case is. And I think, you know, similar to the sales yep. stock, it's it's literally about filling holes in inventory. Mm -hmm. And it's literally for, you know, the backpacker or whoever about, well, you know, I'm going to get some passive income on this. Uh, especially now with TCG fees being what they are. You can throw some Volks in an LGS and say you get ten percent. Generally, they're going to be fine with that. Oh yeah. Uh, if if you have a large enough quantity and they really don't want to deal with singles, mm -hmm. and this is another thing where it's as easy as having a conversation like, hey, you know, you guys don't really stock singles, um, or you have a small selection. I've got a bunch that I'd like to sell, but I know you don't necessarily have the capital to buy them off of me. Would you be fine if I put this in your case? And it's typically, you know, you've got to set up something in the POS to track sales numbers. Um, but it makes it really easy to just be like, hey, you know what? I've, I've got this stuff, especially now when events aren't happening. Yep. This is something I've noticed a, a lot of my backpacker buddies are doing is they're like, you know, I've got a couple stores here that, you know, I may not necessarily want to deal with TCG. I get more money out of this. I don't have to do any work. I don't have to pack it. I don't have to respond to stupid messages when I don't get them tracking in six hours. Like, it, it's just something that is beneficial for you mm -hmm. because you don't really have to put a whole lot of effort into it. And it's very beneficial to the LGS because it gives them an avenue for a product that they may not necessarily have access to under normal circumstances. Yeah. You know, LGSs are hurting, no secret. Uh, Watsi's doing FBA, whatever. So they may not necessarily have the money to buy a full 40 duels, but if you're going to give them 10% of a full 40, yeah, they'll do that. They'll just sit there, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're just taking up case space, and if they have it to give to you, yeah, absolutely. Um, my consignment sales, uh, sales and buys are done, uh, generally speaking, at the pre-release times. Yeah. Where I'm able to set up cases, and then I consignment sell from, from there as necessary. Uh, my LGS the owner was very specific about the way things needed to be done and thus they were fairly um, inflexible and eventually people started to, to move out and branch out on their own and find places they either could consign or started vending locally themselves and and it, exactly like you said it's just either a matter of something in the POS system or hand noting it or for me at the pre-release it's just as I'm buying and selling because it's a pre-release and not everybody is there to do business. I have time yeah. in between most of my interactions that I can just sit down with a spreadsheet and enter my numbers as necessary. And it's a very quick kind of thing. And um, the process I use is 
basically the process I use when I was out at Magic Fest and learn how to chop sales and buys. You know, it's a very, yeah. it's very simple and straightforward. You know, not everybody is lucky enough to have an LGS that'll allow them to do consignment. So it's one, you know, yeah. that that's a you know can be a bummer because then you have to go through Facebook, etc. You know, and I, I was doing consignment sales for people to TCG Player, eBay, and Facebook, and you know that was no picnic because I had to sit down and basically not buy the cards from somebody but before they would give them to me and i take them on i had to condition check them and you know set up expectations for numbers ahead of time and that was a huge pain in the ass i think one of the interesting things too specifically with pre-releases and this is something i've done in the past is i'll basically tell them hey look i'm gonna give you 250 bucks you know 500 bucks whatever i'm gonna have a booth i will handle all of the buying of cards and what I've done in that case is I'll ask the shop, you know, what do you want to pay on X, Y, Z? Like, oh, okay. generally, yeah. what do you want to pay on this? And then I pay less. So if there's, like, specific cards they want from the pre-release and they're paying, I will pay them a little bit less, get the cards, and then sell it for the increased price to the LPS. LPS yeah. um, and that, that basically works out where they will literally, if someone comes up and says, hey, I have this to sell, they will send them to me. And they will say, he'll give you the best prices. You know, we're not buying at the pre-release because whatever reason, he is, he's got the cash, go to him. Yep. And then similar to what I said when I chop buys at Magic Fest, you know, it's the reverse. They give me the number, I pay less and sell it to them for more rather than me paying less and, you know, paying more. And I think that that's something that's really interesting because that is, to me, a much better way to set yourself up as a vendor in the space, as a known quantity, as like, hey, you want the best prices? Go to this pre-release. That's yep. where he'll be. That's where all the money. That's goes. that's basically why I get the pre-release spots. Uh, my LGS yeah. likes to do pre-releases at a hotel, and we just rent one of the conference rooms for the entire day. And yep. my booth fee basically pays for the room. Yep. So whatever they make on the sealed product that they can sell now at pre-releases or supplies, etc., is just gravy for them. Gravy. And I yep. maintain my presence at uh, pre-releases and I get to differentiate myself from the other vendors Mm -hmm. that work with other LGSs because I get to stock my cases the way I want to and offer my buy prices and the things that I'm looking for because like as I mentioned I'm basically only buying you know high-end reserve list not high-end foils not you know high like things like inventions i leave that to the the lgs level let them take care of it most lgs's can't fork out for like you mentioned duels they can't fork out for power as an individual i absolutely can buy some of that here and there and have the ability to float the cash to to reroute it so i get to keep my brand yeah and it it gives you the out for that stuff as well uh, because you may have the guy showing up at the pre-release that like doesn't play a lot, but he collects. Yep. And he'll see those, you know, pieces of candy he doesn't have, and be like, you know, let's let's work it out. Yep. You know, and have whatever stuff trade in, and it's it's a good symbiotic relationship uh, rather than a parasitic one, which is how I see or hear a lot of vendors describing it. And I think that that's you know incredibly irresponsible to describe it that way it's very symbiotic i think in all three cases honestly oh yeah absolutely uh, shopping sales buys consignment whatever yeah they're all beneficial yeah and, and and obviously consignment doesn't work for every store especially if they're a store that actually like cracks their product for singles etc yeah. and you know it, it's all about you know uh reading the room 
Yeah. In regards to consignment sure. sales. It it's something I probably could have done before at my LGS if the ownership wasn't as they are. Um, yeah. My LGS stopped single sales because they were just tired of repricing and I was joking with the guys about um, the Mythic Archives and they're thankful they got out when they did because like Ben Bly was, has been saying over the last couple of weeks, how, we don't know how we're supposed to track all this crap. There's so many SKUs. Watsy, how many SKUs do we need? You yeah. really got to start telling us this stuff, not just for singles, but for product as well. Every product is slightly different. What do we need? Yeah. But as an individual, if management as it was, or ownership as it was, as I said, I could stock those cases and feed them prices as necessary. Yeah. So they basically could still remove the labor for singles like they wanted to, but also still keep a presence uh, in regards yeah. to single sales within the area. Picks? Yep, let's do it. All right. You went first last week. I'm going. You're going first this week. All right. So originally, and if you're in the Discord, you can see the show notes. I picked Wandering Archaic. I still think long-term that card's great. There was a buyout, though, so price is a little volatile right now. So what I'm instead picking is Essex Fractal Bloom, the Extended Art. So this is kind of an interesting one. The Extended Art doesn't come in foil. The non-Extended Art doesn't come in non-foil. But this is one of those cards where, personally, I think the art is incredible, yep. and I like the little extra bit that you get from the border, or extended art one. So this card is from the Strixhaven Commander yes. sets, which are straight fire. They're just bangers. The commanders are great. My Six LGS mana four, four. sold out oh, of the Lorehold one. Yeah. Like... I, it, and... Again, we're not necessarily sure what restocks are going to look like on this because of how accelerated the release structure is, production delays, shipping delays, whatever. But it does the blue-green thing. Yep. It messes with tokens. Awesome. You know what cards are great that mess with tokens? Literally everything. Everything that doubles tokens is good. Uh, so first time you would create one or more tokens during each of your turns... Instead, choose a creature other than Essex and create that many tokens that are copies of that creature. So this is interesting because it does impact comes into play abilities and stuff like that. If you have parallel lives, doubling season, anything, anything. it stacks with all of that. So if you want to build your dirtily token deck that draws all the cards, plays all the lands, takes all the turns, and uses your 100 die bag to keep track of your sapperlings, your birds, whatever. This card's perfect. This this is a casual EDH rock star. This card is incredible. And the nice thing is, if you look at the stocks graph, we're on downturn. It's coming back up a little bit, but it's been stable for about a week now. So our all-time low was at about $10.10 for market, and that was on the 28th. So we're just off of the all-time low. I think that this is probably about an eight-ish month turnaround, assuming we don't hit a reprint, we don't hit a secret layer, drop anything like that. Because I think that the EDH cycle for inset cards is accelerated, yes. The commander deck cards, unless they have legacy playability, looking at you, Dockside, don't accelerate as fast. They're only in a commander product, there's not a lot of outside pressure aside from Commander. People are probably going to buy the deck if they want the Commander in the short term. 
long term. We saw it with Thrasios. We saw it with all the partner commanders. We've mm-hmm. seen it with plenty of the other commanders as well. Uh, Rune. Uh, what's the goat dude that donates stuff? Zedru. Uh, Zedru, yeah. We've seen it with those guys before. So I think eight to ten months, getting in now at about eight to nine dollars, great. Yep. At that time, I would feasibly say you'll be able to make a 50% profit on Bylas just based on natural demand for cards like this. The other interesting thing is that if you take a look, and this is a tool that I don't use nearly often enough, if you look at the weekly interests on MTG stocks, this is a top loser for the week. So in the last week, this has seen a very stark drop. I think it's like 15% in price. Um, That's great. I think that means it's an excellent time to buy. Uh, So yeah, 14.9% drop from 12.60 to 10. I think that's great. I wanna get in on the dip. I wanna sell on the rise. And I just think that this effect, this impact, especially being a legendary creature, which means in EDH, you always have access to your token do- or token manipulator. Great. Think it's a rock star. Yeah, uh, I like it because it's interesting. And like you mentioned, like all the decks are gas. And this is the one that I, I think offered the most. I was talking, was it um, either Caffrey or um, Chicago style gaming, Shagtown gaming? Uh, about the Simic deck in particular and what that deck offered compared to the others in regards to just highly playable cards. Like, yeah, it seemed like this had the... Of all the new cards in all the decks, this one seemed to have the most bangers of the bunch. And what this deck can do, stock and what it offers to EDH as a whole is incredible because you don't have to just play Simic, you can branch out into other other color pairings, and you look at something like Dovescape, and if yeah. you already have a giant creature on the board with Dovescape out, and then you let Dovescape counter your spell, first spell each turn, you know, you're going to make copies of whatever it was, whatever is Woodfall Primus. Both Crater Hoof Behemoths. Yeah. Woodfall Primus. Woodfall, yeah, Woodfall yeah, Primus. You know, things like that from other big, dumb creatures. It, it starts to create this, like, interesting like sub game within the format of like this is our foundation where do we go from here and like that's actually a lot of what i talk about for my pick this week is just like this is we talk about this when we talk about like old school hip-hop and rap card like beats and riffs and 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 um ciphers are foundation to the genre and you'll hear people like harken back to them all the time because we wouldn't be where we are now without them. And I think this is one of those cards, like Doubling Season, like Parallel Lives uh, before it, um, the the other one from like C14 or, or whatever, um, that also does things with tokens. You're just going to find that there are these cards that just kind of like reset the genre, so to speak, and then just reform it around it. And this is, this is that. You know, we're not just playing like green white or black green elves and making a bunch of tokens here it's like no we're looking to do a very specific thing now we have yeah. we have our game plan set and this is foundational so and I, it's not just dice factory now you're seeing stuff yes. like this like reflections of Layara. yep where it's like all right it's not just big dumb tokens we have a strategy now and that yep. that evolution gives it more playability as well because mm-hmm. now you have the chance of going into like interesting deck construction interactions the really timmy side of it it's yep. like end of the week. this kind of turns every 
uh, every token generating card you have into right of replication. There's another way to look at it, you know. Yeah. And and I, I like that. I, I like this card a lot, and I, I like looking at foundational elements for the format. Harkens back to last week when we were talking about staples. Granted, we were looking at reserveless and old school, but like cards like this are always a very good look because yeah. you can tell like this is going to be you know paramount to these strategies. So like I said. My pick as well, foundational. It's Karn's Bastion. You know, this is a a land with the keyword proliferate. It really doesn't matter what else this card does. It says four mana, tap it, proliferate. And the stocks graph since prior to Kaldheim has been nothing but up. So uh, I've been watching this since uh, about January, you know, a little bit before the initial uptick started to happen. Card Kingdom was buying 59 at $1.80. There were 212 LP or better on TCG Player at $2.68. As of Friday, Card Kingdom was only buying 14 set non-foil at $3.25. They were buying 9 set foils at $3.60, which is interesting, but also not when you consider that there's the pre-release foil, a Planeswalker weekend foil, promo pack foil, and set foil. And as of Friday, there were 154 left on TCG Player at $5, right? Uh, today, right before the cast, I checked in. It looked like somebody had sated Card Kingdom's buy list demand, and they are no longer buying set non-foils, but that does not scare me at all, right? So this card goes into every counter base deck that can take advantage of proliferate. And when I say counter, and I'm going to use this word a lot, I mean, you know, uh, loyalty counters, plus one, plus one counters, minus one, minus one counters, infect. Uh, I don't think there are many non-redundant keyword counters or to uh, tokens, however you want to look at that. You know, all of those decks, this is foundational to them. Right? So this is one of a few color agnostic ways to proliferate. Highly playable across all strategies regarding counters that can be proliferated, as I mentioned, from poison to planeswalkers. Over time, as we can see uh, on stocks, you know, proliferate counters based strategies uh, consistently receive boosts, and we'll see uh, price increases continuously because of that. And we get new commanders, new cards. The strategy essentially is just kept fresh all the time. So, like Contagion Engine, Contagion Clasp, and Ex Inexorable Tide before it, this is a difficult permanent to deal with that can end games quick. That can end games in an extremely quick fashion. Yeah. Faster when paired with Seaborn Muse, right? So the strategy is really wide open, and this card is just as wide open for playability within the format, if not just the strategy on the whole. Nice. Yeah. Uh, I also like it because it's plane specific. Uh, I, uh, do, I do mention that, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I think this is solid. I think anytime you can proliferate, because like you said, it's an incredibly impactful thing. Yeah. Anytime. And the fact that it is... You know, one of the few color agnostic ways. You basically have on-demand proliferation from this and Contagion Engine. Uh, I believe just Contagion Engine. I always forget what Contagion Clasp does, though. I know it has the keyword proliferate on it. Uh, I think it's only when it comes into play, proliferate. That's what I thought uh, as well. No, it is renewable proliferate. Okay. Sorry. Uh, oh, you so go. you have those three ways to do it. Yep. Two of those are artifacts which are fairly easy for every color to interact with. Yep. One of those is a land, which is a lot more difficult to get rid of unless yes. you're in red or running. You hit your one of Wasteland or Strip Mine. Yep. Uh, I, I think this is 
incredibly good. I thought that when it first released and we had a million promos of this card drop, there was no way this card would ever hit $5. I Full disclosure, I thought it was garbage. I was wrong. Yep. Uh, I've, I've played it a bunch in uh, Sultai Proliferate, which is a, a, a deck we keep around here that can win with Infect. And I'll tell you, we run everything in that deck except Contagion class, but that allows us to do... Uh, that allows us to reliably proliferate and contagion engine not nearly as good as this the only card that is better is inexorable tide or sometimes if you can land the uh the green creature with landfall proliferate evolution sage yeah like evolution sage is really the only other card that can reliably keep up with this but evolution sage is color specific like i don't care that it's not a rare i would pick evolution sage as a spec on this cast if it was as wide open as something like Karn's Bastion. So yeah. uh, part of my timeline conversation will be actually talking about how, how this is playing specific and why I like that. But um, buying in quantity now on TCG Player will allow us uh, to basically look at a private to buy list in the next six or months or so, six months or so if the current price trend holds. So what we saw with, with Caltime and, and the increase, uh, kind of rapid increase that we saw, and I'll tighten in a little bit, um, is really due to Vorinclex Monster Strader and Finn the Fangbearer because they were introduced to the Commander format yeah. and basically uh, pushed, at that point, the retail price and almost doubled the Biolist price in about three months. And uh, I'll bring both these cards up real quick on Wreck in case you don't know what they, they do um, as I continue to talk. So Strixhaven, Strixhaven gives us... Um, Chalet Den of Radiance, which is a, a black-white card, and if history serves as an example, we'll continue to get counters-based cards and generals in the future, right? So this always happens. We're always going to get new stuff. You take a look at Wreck, and it's just kind of the greatest hits of counters-based generals over the last, I don't know, four or five years. The list goes on and on and on. So, uh, you know, I would expect an immediate out to buy list for profit within six months, but the longer you wait, the better this gets, and this can easily become a long-term hold. So, being plain specific, mentioning the long-term hold, right? My concern with this being a long-term hold is that it can be reprinted in an EDH deck as they rarely seem to hold plain-based characters or events sacrosanct, and will pull from all available cards. If yeah. I were to looking, if I were looking to maximize my profit, I would hold until late winter 2020, just before Commander 2020 spoilers start. Now, I'm saying late winter because the last two years we've had the Commander set drop in um, like mid to late spring. Prior yeah. to that, it's been over the summer. They could readjust. So in reality, that timeline could shift, but. If things hold true, it's going to be a late winter where I would look to out for maximal profits before I start worrying about an EDH reprint. Do I ever think this will see a master set reprint? Not really. Inexorable Tide was a really weird look in that modern master set, but at the same time, they put graft in there, and that's kind of why. It's not the greatest yeah. keyword pairing, proliferate and graft, because you're just shuffling the counters around. You're not really rebuilding stock of them. But graft is also not an easy keyword to grok, and so I don't expect it to come back unless they put something like infect in one of these sets. And at the same time, they're probably, exactly, not going to do that. 
No. So you'd have a really you'd have to have a really wonky strategy or sub theme built into a master set that might just take too much setup to get working. So I don't think we'd ever see it outside of a commander deck where they can dedicate the entire ninety nine cards to it. If we do see that, I don't know what recovery would look like overall. The proliferate strategy, while popular on EDH, is not super popular in EDH. If you're looking at Wreck, um, there's 25,000 decks that run Karn's Bastion, and it's really spread out across a ton of generals. There's no like real cohesion anymore. It's not just a Traxa. It's a lot of stuff that can be done. And so recovery after reprint might not happen if there isn't a little more cohesion on one general like some other themes are based around. So, yeah, like I said, this is my pick. Basically, my timeline would be, you know, like I said, about a, a year maximum on this before I start worrying about selling out. But I'm not afraid to buy in now after this price increase because we just keep getting more counter-based things to do. Hey. It touches on, like, whenever I mention Collected Company, it's one of those cards that, because of the way the game is designed, only gets better in longer term. Yep. Right? That's anything that satisfies that niche is as close to, like, reserve list style safe bet as you can get. Yeah. It's something that will have value, that will have playability, that will have impact, and only improve. Yes. It's a safe thing. Anybody listening to the podcast just heard um, my Windows notification sounds. I was searching the EDH rec page of Karn's Bastions for the card Ikerrats. If you don't know what this card is, it, in combination with Karn's Bastion, wins you the game. Here's Ikerrats. It just drops a poison counter on everyone. From there, Karn's Bastion wins you the game. Like... Great uncommon. Thanks, guys. It's a a very powerful thing to do. Yeah. You don't need to dedicate a lot to it. We saw Skithrix on there, and like, yeah, sure, Skithrix gets the game done itself. But you need yeah. to punch somebody in the face with Skithrix. Ikerrats ju- I- just comes into play, and everybody gets a little sicker. Just, yep. Everybody picks up a cough. And you know what? When you look at it, things like that, it really becomes a question of, well, why not? Why not just dedicate a little more? Why aren't there that many more decks that are playing uh, black on this page? You know, why not? Why not? Why not? And Again, more looks over time, more content creators move in. As we've been talking about, this is a card that definitely could pick up. It's not something as weird as Swarm Yard, which just dealt with weird creature types that nobody gave a shit about. Like, I don't know why that card, you know, held money. Like, who's regenerating spiders? Like, who cares? It's Elephant Graveyard for other stuff. Yeah. No, it's bad. It's bad. Yeah. Stop it. Karn's Bastion, not bad. Great look. Good hold. I, I, like I said, I expect this to just keep going for the next year. So... Say bye, Penelope. <laughs> so, I think that's going to do it for us. Oh, there she is. For, yep. uh, for the two of us and the cat this week. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but we are at MGD, MTG Cabalcast on Twitter, Patreon, uh, Facebook. Oh, well, that, you can find the podcast on Spotify and yeah. uh, Stitcher, Audible, Apple Podcasts, and the Google Podcast Network or whatever the heck they're called. But... I am at Halt, I am Reptar. You are... At Thirsty Sizzler. And the cat is... Penelope. We'll see you next week. (laughs) See you guys.